0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, New York Nights, Writing, Producing, and Performing in Gotham. And the author is Nick Catalano, and Nick joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Nick. Hi, how are you, Steve? Well, you've had a life filled with experiences in the arts in New York City, met a lot of people, done a lot of things producer, performer, reviewer. Kind of let's start at the beginning, the beginning of your book. You talk about the early years. How young were you when you became a musician?
2: I started playing at five. Uh Started performing professionally at 11 uh, and started to play jazz at that time and uh, was fortunate enough to be uh, here in New York for the bebop revolution. Played with many, many fantastic musicians and uh, it was really terrific. Uh, Did a lot of television playing and some of this stuff is all recorded in the book together with a few interesting stories about performing as a musician here in Gotham.
1: Now, what instrument did you play or instruments? I play,
2: I play all the reeds, Steve, uh, all the saxophones and, of course, clarinet and flute and uh, all the other things. I studied that and uh, wound up doing that.
1: Now, this was the end of the big band era.
2: Yeah, basically it was uh, a few years after that, but what it did is coincide with the, uh, uh, the naissance or the origin of bebop jazz. And so there were some very, very famous names on the scene, one of whom was Clifford Brown, a great bebop trumpeter. Uh, I wrote a book on Clifford, uh, published in 2000 by Oxford Press, uh, and uh, other people, Max Roach, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, on and on and on.
1: So how did you get involved from going at, from a musician into producing and introducing oh. you know, early audiences to a lot of comedians?
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've been a professor and a vice president at Pace University for decades. My day job is as an English and a music professor at Pace. And in addition to that, I was the director of performing arts for many, many years and started producing varieties of concerts, ballet, jazz, opera, and so on, and did a series early on in the 70s for the students uh, where I introduced them to new comics who were appearing in New York. And those new comics, of course, were not very, very famous in the 70s, but they became sort of the barons of show business. Uh, And the list is absolutely endless. It starts with uh, people like uh, Jay Leno and Jerry Seinfeld and Bill Maher and Richard Delzer and, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Robin Williams, on and on and on. And so they did my shows. Uh, in conjunction with my own production company i uh, I also produced a few of these shows independently and in, to the, in addition to the comics also produced shows with many, many uh, jazz musicians that were quite famous, people like Lionel Hampton and Benny Goodman and duke ellington and and all of that so that was basically the the basis of my of my producing career
1: any um, memorable stories about these New and upcoming comedians.
2: Well, yeah, there are there are a whole bunch of them in the book. Uh, share,
1: share a couple with us.
2: Well, certainly uh, one of the one of the great stories and so on involves uh, Jerry Seinfeld, who was uh, I call him one of the third wavers. Uh, Jerry was uh, working at Catch a Rising Star and the Improv. These were two clubs that I booked all of the comics out of, and Jerry was such a fresh new uh absolutely pure face and i remember early on getting phone calls from a variety of people saying can you send us a comic that we can use in front of a wedding or uh you know or some nice little function and so on who's not usually using scatological language and i always called jerry he was uh he was uh really wonderful and terrific he wrote his own material he was quite hysterical uh we had a graduation party for my daughter at Catch a Rising Star and Bill Maher entertained, together with uh, Pat Benatar, who was a great young rock star at the time. So it was that kind of thing.
1: Now, you've also been very involved in dance, dance creations.
2: Yeah, I've, I've produced, in, the con- in connection with my Pace University concert series, all of the big famous dance companies. Uh... Oh, gosh, the Joffrey Ballet, uh, Martha Graham, uh, the uh, Connecticut Ballet, the Cincinnati Ballet. Uh, I introduced them to New York for the very first time after the collapse of the Soviet Empire, the new St. Petersburg Ballet. Uh, uh, Isadora Duncan, I could go on with these names. Uh, they're all there. It was, a long, it was a lot of years that I did this.
1: How did you make all those connections?
2: As a producer in New York, uh, affiliated with uh, major agencies, uh, got to know uh, some of the best agents in New York, and of course developed friendships. They just weren't business relationships; they were friendships. And 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 because of the fact that I had New York venues, uh, many of them were anxious to uh, introduce performers into Gotham here, and uh, I was always able to negotiate some, some very very favorable terms. And so it was uh, it was a lot of fun.
1: Are the big bands still as popular today as they were back, you know, in the course of the 30s, well, 40s, I'll give, 50s?
2: I'll, I'll give you one story. Uh, the Glenn Miller Band toured Japan before the Second World War and is still touring Japan. <laughs> oh,
1: my goodness. Still, they, the... haven't
2: missed, they haven't missed a year except for the war. Still, uh, yes, the ghost bands are all out there, the Dorsey Brothers, uh, Benny Goodman. Uh, Jimmy Dorsey Tommy Dorsey uh, the Glenn Miller band I mentioned uh, and, and other ones and so on and I was able to take advantage of that by uh, bringing them to my campuses for for basically we did ballroom dances that you couldn't get tickets to that's how popular they were
1: With a lot of young musicians I'm sure in these bands
2: uh, Absolutely, uh, you know they're young jazz kids come out of school now uh, when I was a youngster there was only one university with a jazz program and now there's over 400 of them so there are huge amounts of very very talented musicians all over the place and some of them get hooked up with these bands
1: well and you also associated with a lot of famous singers like tony bennett and mel torme when i think of mel torme that really takes me back that silky voice
2: Oh, my goodness. I miss him so much. He was a good friend as well as a performer in many of my shows. Uh, he was a mentor to so many singers. In the book, I tell a story about how he, he uh, as a writer, he wrote several books, and he wrote a wonderful biography of the drummer Buddy Rich. And Buddy, I produced some television with Buddy in the old days. So there's all sorts of interesting connections with some of these singers. Yes, Tony Bennett, of course, and... Uh, Oh, gosh, Jack Jones, uh, Pat Benatar, I mentioned before. Uh, the list is endless. <laughs> New York is a big place.
1: What were some of the people that helped you along the way?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned in the book, uh, my lifelong friend is a, a guy who uh, I went to music school with. Uh, his name is Tony Monty. Tony is a, a performer, producer, a scientist here in New York, uh, uh, I'm very, very grateful to the university because uh, the university gave me a kind of a an avenue to do this. Uh, we were lucky in br- being able to bring all these wonderful performers to the university. But in a sense, the, my my university job helped me with my own production company and uh, uh, got me into some of these television things, uh, writing things, and so on. And uh, my uh, my my great gratitude goes to Pace University. <laughs>
1: Well, the university always is a an open door for all kinds of uh, really, uh, you know, the newest and the brightest and the uh, and yeah. the most yes, exciting. Often,
2: yes, it is. Uh, and uh, the university at the university, I've taught uh, just about all the courses in the English department, and I've been teaching a jazz course for uh, well over twenty five years. And preparing a new book, uh, I, I, I do another thing uh, in connection with my university work. I, I teach courses in classical Greek and take my students to Greece each year. I've been doing that for 20 years. And I'm preparing a new book uh, in where whereby we take a look at the, the great contributions of classical Greece and see if we can apply them to some of our own problems. So that's the next book. <laughs> yeah, Pace has been great. It's just been marvelous.
1: I'm always so impressed with uh, folks like you that seem to be able to get so much done, and then on top of it all, you're writing another book. How do you do it all?
2: well, i tell you again, i'll go back to pace so uh, when somehow, when I was a kid uh I graduated from college, I decided that there were all sorts of career opportunities in those days, unlike now, and I picked the university because I knew I would have a lot more time and boy i was never I've never regretted that decision because. The university schedule gave me all sorts of opportunities to do producing, as I say, my own company and uh, writing. Uh, It's just been wonderful. Uh, We have, uh, as you know, protracted uh, periods of uh, vacation time in the summer, and I was always able to use use those for all of these other things.
1: Of course, all your writing led you right into being a reviewer.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I've been a syndicated reviewer here in New York for 20 years, uh, I have a column on the largest jazz uh, web scene. I have a oh my god! I think it's about a million three hundred thousand hits a month. Uh, so the writing and the reviewing is all been again it fit into this almost like a almost like a bit of a puzzle piece and so on into this sort of total cultural experience here in New York. And that's the reason for the title of the book.
1: How well did you know Rosemary Clooney?
2: I, I, I produced her in concert a couple of times and uh, actually wrote reviews. Uh, Rosie was in a, a beautiful New York venue called Rainbow and Stars. She, she was a very big headliner. She had uh, basically uh, trimmed down her movie career and uh, began a, uh, a recording uh, cabaret career in New York, and I was right there at the time. Had many interviews with her, and uh, at that time she was also uh, kind of hanging out with uh, Nelson Riddle. They were uh, together for a while. And uh, during that time it was uh, really wonderful. She was a very special person and uh, an absolutely consummate performer. It was great.
1: Yeah, she always has that, just such that uh, pure image of. Of entertainer and uh, just overall good person. That's the way you always feel about her when well, you when you see one her. One of the
2: th- one of the things that was really outstanding. She signed a contract with uh, Concord Records, and uh, she was featured with some very very wonderful jazz musicians who were not very popular. Certainly not as popular as she was at the time. And in the recordings, what she did is she always sang her chorus, and then gave the musicians whole choruses to perform alongside her. So she she didn't, it was very, very unusual in in the recording of a singer. She never hogged any of the time. She gave the guys a chance. One of them has become a a, a bit of a jazz immortal, Scott Hamilton. And it's really because of that, that association with Rosie.
1: You also worked with Johnny
3: Mathis.
2: Yeah, I produced Johnny in concert a few times uh at the Westchester Premier Theater uh here in New York. Uh wrote about him, reviewed him, uh interviewed him several times, and was always a great fan. Uh, I I don't think that there's been anybody in, 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 in show business whose whose recordings have been more finely crafted than Johnny. He was dedicated to uh his life as a as a recording artist. Uh he He eschewed all sorts of opportunities in in television and movies and so on because he really wanted to be uh, focused as a recording artist, and he certainly did that.
1: He was such a technician with sound, with the sound of his voice.
2: And he had wonderful people that he got together through the years to produce those uh, outstanding recordings, as you know.
1: And what about the opera?
2: Well, opera in New York is, uh, of course, uh, one of the mainstays. Uh, and because of that, uh, I, I, you know, I had a chance to do lots of opera reviews. Uh, got to uh, see in the, the heydays, of course, people like Franco Corelli and later on Placido Domingo and, of course, uh, Pavarotti, uh, Marella Frigny, Joan Sutherland. Uh, I mean, my God, what can I say? Here in the Apple, <laughs> you see it all if you if you're lucky enough to be involved with the arts.
1: And you just love New York City.
2: Yes, I do. I've been here all my life. Uh, I love it maybe more because I have a chance to spend a great deal of time away from it, uh, writing about it, talking about it in Europe. i am in Europe a great deal. I just finished uh, two months uh, of uh, uh, both performing and writing uh, in Europe and teaching. And, uh, yeah, New York is uh, very special for me. I, I, I have not had life in New York that many people have to have. I don't commute. I don't have to take trains. Uh, it's just basically a cultural playground for me. I get to uh, see uh, opening nights uh, as a reviewer. I get all sorts of fresh new CDs and books. and it's, uh, it, it's really a cultural playground. And that's really why I wrote this book.
1: Have you ever been involved on Broadway?
2: Not not really, uh, other than being a reviewer. uh, I did produce a couple of shows uh, in my concert series that uh, eventually went on to Broadway with performers, uh, one of which uh, was a a show called Swing with Maggie Whiting and John Pizzarelli, uh, and another show was uh, Broadway Review, uh, a a Broadway review that was in the old days. But uh, Broadway hasn't been the the biggest love of my musical life, uh, as, as the book reflects, it. it's basically jazz and cabaret and, and of course, opera uh, and recording.
1: We've got about a minute left. Nick, uh, share some closing thoughts about your book.
2: Uh, I just read a five-star review of it today on Amazon.com from uh, some guy out in California who said that he grew up in... Uh, in New Jersey, about fifty miles from New York, and always looked at it as if it were a playground. And he said something to the effect that uh, reading my book uh, was so enjoyable that uh, it, it 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 got him through uh, some of the corners of uh, show business and the arts and so on that he really never knew about uh, growing up uh, close to New York. Uh, he he was very very delighted with the book, and uh, he made me want to read it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, that's great. That's great. Well, tell us how to get your book.
2: Uh, oh, my goodness. It's uh, Amazon. It's uh, Barnes & Noble. These days, uh, those are the biggest outlets. Uh, people are not doing as much in bookstores as they used to, uh, but uh, they can get it uh, r- right online at uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And, uh, there's a couple of other uh, outlets also, and, of course, the bookstores have it all over the place.
1: Well, Nick, we really appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio.
2: Well, thanks so much, Steve. It was a pleasure. It's always great to talk about New York, as you can see.
1: That was Nick Catalano. He is the author of his book, New York Nights, Writing, Producing, and Performing in Gotham.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: East Texas, Meals on Wheels, needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices, toll free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.MealsOnWheelsEastTexas.org. Again, toll free at one 800 451 or visit us on the web at www.MealsOnWheelsEastTexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Ever wondered how you can make a difference in someone's life when you don't have a lot of time or money to give? Well, the East Texas Crisis Center and Tyler Ford have partnered in a way that helps everyone. For just $10, you can win a limited edition autographed Shelby GT Mustang that has been donated to the Crisis Center by Tyler Ford. All the money stays right here in East Texas and helps victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. To get your ticket, call 903-579-2500. That's 903-579-2500
5: saturdays on toginap.com it's author talk get the story behind the story on fiction and literature graphic novels horror mystery and crime novels romance science fiction and fantasy westerns history humor inspiration and every genre it's all on author talk you'll get to hear new authors talk about their books take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it it's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio, with host, Steve
1: Jorgensen. The title of the book, Getting Things Done Through Project Management, and the author is Deji Badaru, and Deji joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Deji. Good afternoon. Good to have you on the show, now... Tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote this book.
6: I'm an industrial engineering professor, and over the years I've been able to do several things, uh, either personally or professionally, using the techniques of project management. And I felt that uh, it would be helpful to share that with other people outside my professional interactions.
1: So this isn't written for the professional. This is a lot easier to read.
6: Exactly. So it's a more general version of my other project management professional books.
1: Now, when you hear the phrase project management, give us an an overview of what that means, project management. It sounds very formal.
6: (laughs) Yes. Uh, Project management uh, simply means the process of planning, organizing, executing, controlling, and closing projects. And that is basically what it's all about. Uh, the typical process of scheduling activities, to determine which activity goes before which activity, how long each one takes, and how you coordinate the overall process of getting a particular activity done, all of those will fall under the title of project management. Uh, it's formal. But it's actually something that everyone needs. Every human endeavor is indeed a project. Whether we are cooking at home, whether we are doing laundry, whether we are making uh, a trip, uh, all of those can be classified as project endeavor.
1: So it's a blueprint, if you will. uh, Before you start to do anything, you have this vision and you put everything down on paper, exactly step-by-step process of how you're going to get it done.
6: Exactly. Except that uh, you don't have to put all of this on paper. Once it becomes second nature, you, in the process of how you do things, uh, it also involves the commitment to get it done. In ordinary day-to-day activities, we plan what we're going to do. We let ourselves to be derailed by other things that come up in the meantime and therefore, thereby, thereby uh, abandoning our initial plan. Well, project management teaches you the dedication, in the process of keeping with the outline of what you had intended to do.
1: You use a quote in your book from the Chronicle of Higher Education that says, life is full of deadlines. You meet them, beat them, perhaps even miss them, but you know better than to ignore them.
6: Exactly. And I like that quote very much. Uh, that's why I uh, use it in the book. Uh, Because some things, whether we like it or not, eventually will come up, and we either do it now or we have to contend with it later on. And doing it now means we can get it out of the way uh, within reason, within budget, within proper time scheduling, and we don't have to deal with it later on. We can devote our subsequent effort to other things.
1: So don't put yeah. off today what you you know what you can do today. I guess, huh?
6: Exactly, because there will be other things tomorrow that will come up to be done.
1: Now you have a success formula where you talk about success involves intelligence, common sense, and self discipline. I think all of us can, uh, and and we'll talk about intelligence and self-discipline, but I was uh, very curious about why you added common sense.
6: Okay. Uh, Common sense is the process of dedicating yourself to applying the intelligence that you have based on the specific social and cultural environment that you find yourself in, So common sense is that process that we learn by the associations that we keep, the environment that we find ourselves in, and how to draw inferences based on the prevailing scenarios that we operate in.
1: So every Every situation is different?
6: Every situation is different, and you have to adapt and see what the present uh, decisions uh, are and how to use what current information you have to make current decisions.
1: Someone might feel that they're not smart enough to do something, but can they learn?
6: Oh, that's definitely. Uh, we always say that book smart is different from being street smart. Street smart means that you know what is going on. You keep connected to your environment. And you use the information in the environment to make uh, appropriate decisions to get things done. So everyone can learn. Everyone is uh, uh, endowed with that process of having natural intelligence, but more importantly, to be able to connect to your environment and make uh, decisions that are current for what is going on.
1: Of course, the self-discipline aspect of this is so crucial. Just without that, nothing happens.
6: And nothing happens, exactly. Exactly, And this is particularly useful for youth, uh, who typically might want to rely on the fact that they have uh, intelligent, natural intelligence, and they know it all. And sometimes if they know it all, but they are not connected with their environment, the decision they make may not fit the current situation they are in.
1: So that self-discipline is also tied to a self-motivation as well.
6: Uh, Exactly. And project management teaches us that self-motivation to be self-actuating. Don't wait until somebody uh, beats you on the head to get moving. You know you have to move, so you might as well be proactive. And get going.
1: As someone said, well, uh, I'm just waiting for someone to motivate me. And the person <laughs> said, well, what if that person doesn't show up?
6: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one.
1: All right. Now, compromise. How does that part of this, this project management?
6: Uh, uh, no situation is ever perfect. We will always have to be willing to compromise, to give and take and trade-off. The typical process of getting things done may be on the basis of cost, time, or quality. Well, we cannot always be able to perform what we need to perform within the time that we expect it to be done. We may not be able to do it within the cost that we feel it should take us to get it done, And the quality also may not be at the level that we always expect. So with those three items, you have to be flexible to be able to give and take under certain circumstances. Today, you may be able to get the best quality. Maybe tomorrow, all you can get is the best cost. So not all of those three will be at the optimum level in each and every case. So compromise means to recognize when you need to yield on some expectation. That does not mean abandon the expectation, simply modify and adapt.
1: Delegation is often a key part because you can't do everything.
6: Exactly. Uh, Many people uh, make the mistake of thinking just because they have the skill to do something, they should always jump in there and get it done. A good example is uh, do it yourself projects that we do at home. I would say, oh, well, I can do it. I've done it before. Well, maybe you are able to do it last year when you don't have a baby in the house. You don't have for that demands on your time. Now you want to do the same thing, but the environment is different. You might want to hire somebody to do it this year, something like that.
1: Now, perseverance. That has a very uh, alarming uh, tone to most people because perseverance sounds like, oh, my goodness, whatever it takes to get it done. You know, it, it, you just got to endure through everything, don't you?
6: yeah. Because there's going to be the ups
1: and downs. There's going to be the walls that you got to climb, and it's, a lot of it's going to be uphill.
6: Exactly. Uh, but it's not as intimidating as it sounds. Uh, it simply means don't give up. Uh, every challenge eventually gets a resolution. It may not be the best resolution, but if you don't give up, you will eventually achieve something that comes out of the challenge. So that's what I is. And, res-
1: and the resolution may not be what you had in mind.
6: It may not be, yes. You have to be willing to be flexible and adapt and make the best of whatever that resolution presents.
1: Now, cooperation, when you're teaming with others, partnering with others, obviously cooperation, communication, coordination, you've got to be able to work with other people.
6: Uh, Yes, Uh, that's my favorite thing to uh, present. Uh, Because many times we assume just because somebody is smiling and nodding in agreement, that person is going to exhibit cooperation if we turn our back. No, it doesn't always happen like that. You have to earn and explicitly pursue the cooperation of the people you are dealing with. In other words, you use communication to convince them of the need to participate and do their share. Once they are convinced, if you turn your back, they will do the right thing. So that's what cooperation means. You want it to come from their heart, feeling that, yes, this is something I also want to do. This is something I want to participate in, and I have contribution to make, and that contribution can yield positive results on the task, that's what you want to achieve with cooperation. We made the mistake of simply, oh yeah, we are cooperating, oh it is cooperative, but we really haven't convinced that other individual of the cooperation that will come uh, inherently from their own perception of what is going on. Very good, I like that.
1: What about the saying, timing is everything?
6: Timing is everything. Uh, As I said before, opportunities will always present themselves at different times in different flavors. The timing that uh, works today for a particular set of options may not work tomorrow. Again, we have to learn to adapt. And once the opportunity presents itself, we take advantage of it. As we discussed earlier, don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. If the opportunity presents itself today, go ahead and get it done. If you put it off to do tomorrow, the circumstances may be different. And what looks so appealing today may no longer be valid tomorrow. So timing is uh, everything.
1: Also, it's often better to go outside outside to get things done, to get help, to uh, get services, products.
6: Yes. I used one uh, comic in the book about outsourcing what can be more reasonably done by somebody who is an expert who does that particular task day in, day out. So in some cases, you need help, and if you can get the help somewhere, and that's where you have to compromise. It means it costs you more, but the quality of the work will probably be higher, and the time required to get it done will probably be shorter. So you compromise on the cost in order to achieve better quality and better on-time performance.
1: And finally, Deji, maximizing every hour. That, that is very difficult to stay focused.
6: <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, uh, Technically, we cannot maximize every hour. But if we move towards that perception, it means we milk every hour. We get the utmost that we can out of every hour. If we go with that mindset, then we finish each hour feeling that, yes, I've accomplished something. I got something done with that one hour. And then that creates the motivation and leverage to go into the next hour and begin to do more things.
1: Any closing thoughts?
6: uh, The most important uh, lesson that I wanted to convey in this book uh, is really the dedication to doing what needs to be done. And uh, the way you do that is to get into the habit of thinking Project management is the way to go. Everything in life is a project, and if we take everything indeed as a project that we plan, organize, schedule, and control, uh, we can realize most of our goals and objectives.
1: DG, hey, where do we get your book?
6: Uh, it's available on iUniverse website. Uh, I believe it's also available on Amazon.com, and I know there are plans to have it available through many of the bookstores, particularly uh, Barnes & Noble. So it is uh, going to be a very ubiquitous. You should be able to find it uh, through many online uh,
1: outlets. JG, hey, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Uh, Thank you so much. This has been very exciting. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Deji Badaru. He is the author of his book, Getting Things Done Through Project Management. You're
0: listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
5: He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright. The host of The Right Side of the Aisle on Toginet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on Toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives?, published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives?, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio, with host, Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Lucifer's Trumpet, and the author is John C. Williams, and John joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, John. Hello, how are you, Steve? Well, this is a... Flashback to the roaring 20s, and I guess that's a kind of a period in history that really fascinates you.
3: Yes, it does. My father was, during that uh, era, he was uh, in his haiti, you might say. And I've always, I kind of watch back, you know, the old Elliot Ness things and things like that. I've always been fascinated by that sort of, uh, that period in there.
1: So you were, you told stories and somebody once said to you you ought to write a book
3: yeah you know you know i guess everybody has that happen to them. they say <laughs> oh you know i've been doing this i've done that and and they say you know you ought to write a book about it and that's where i started i started writing a book and i started writing about my own life and then of course i had to go back to my father's life who was born in um mining camp in uh, canada in uh nanaimo canada and <clears throat> I found out his life was a lot more exciting than mine when I started thinking about all the stories he told me. and So I embellished some of the stories and, and uh, took him out of Canada and put him in Seattle and, and uh, during Prohibition, and he got in a lot of trouble.
1: The main character's name is Samuel Wilde.
3: Samuel Wilde, right.
1: Now, he, he kind of gets uh, innocently hooked into this crowd, right?
3: Yeah, well... Actually, he, he and his friend were in a, in a cave-in, in a mine cave-in, and one of their best friends got killed, and they're thinking to themselves, you know, it's not going to be too much longer until this is going to happen to us. And they're sitting in about three or four weeks after the cave-in, and they're sitting in a little tavern, and a man approaches them and says, hey, you guys want to get out of the mines and come work for me in Seattle. And they take it from there. Samuel goes and his other friends, decides to stay back and work the mines. And so that's sort of where it, where it starts out.
1: So he ends up working for a
3: guy named Milo D'Angelo? Yeah, that's the man in the, that was the man in the bar that, who introduced himself. And he came in and uh, had their, the, everything arranged and took him down to Seattle. And he started right away thinking it was a legitimate business. And ended up, of course, being a bootleg business.
1: Looked like he was working for some kind of a fish outfit, huh? A a fish broker.
3: He was a fish broker, was the cover for his illegal operation there.
1: And, of course, with anything like the gang, uh, they asked you to do one thing, and then suddenly you're starting to do other things you never bargained for.
3: Yep, and, and of course, with Samuel now, he's, he's a drinker. He's. That's what they did in the mining camps. They drank and Saturday night was a big thing. So hey, this was good for him to go down and work for a bootlegger because he knew he was gonna get drinking and he was gonna be everything was okay. He didn't have any moral issues with being a, a bootlegger or a rum runner. And he kinda fit right in and, and once he got established and once he once he saw that things he knew as a child or was taught growing up Weren't always so, then he started adjusting, and that's sort of how he moved, he moved to the next step.
1: <clears throat> now, you talk about Sam Samuel, uh, his emergence as a man overcoming his fears. Now, give us some insight into his fears.
3: Well, the, the, thing, the, the title of the book is Lucifer's Trumpet, and as a child, four-year-old child, Samuel was out with his father on a boat. His father was um, a terror. He would beat him and do different things to him. But he tried to to um, teach Samuel how to swim. And he when he went in the water, Samuel didn't want to go. So the father held him under. And just before, just before he um, blacked out, he heard this music, this heavy song, beautiful music. And he blacked out. And then 16, 17 years later, somebody mentioned that. What he heard was lucifer 's trumpet that Lucifer was coming for his soul. well, Samuel was always afraid of deep water after that <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, I carry that theme through through the whole book, and at the end, he has to come face to face with deep water and he he does so
1: and you talk about the different characters that uh, helped reshape him now, talk about these. Different characters and uh, how they w- were able to help him.
3: Well, one of the things with you, you're in. He grew up kind of in an isolated community, you know, a Welsh mining community, and they had definite thoughts and ideas. Um, Chinese were looked down upon. Women, I guess, were looked down upon. But when he went out, he had to, all of a sudden he runs into Chinese people. He not only has to work with, but work for. He runs into an effeminate man who, he, who scares him to death, but if he wants to get illegal whiskey so he can drink it, he has to kind of play ball with this guy. And all the time he's seeing that all these old uh, phobias or whatever fears that he had or ideas that he had about people weren't necessarily so, and he, he quit just judging groups. Like, you know, you had to go to an individual and say, you know, all Chinese are bad. He, he's finding this out, you know, and so he just—it's just, it's just um, people kept pushing him in one direction. The the effeminate man actually taught him how to go into libraries and check out books. Took him to cultural places. Took him um, to the opera. I have a scene where he goes and watches Faust, and um, everything's pretty much on the up and up. And they they, they turn out to be very good friends. And uh, Samuel also runs into a a Chinese woman who is a US Marshal and he's if he's gonna stay out of trouble and stay out of jail and stay out of being deported, he's gotta work with her. Well at first he doesn't like the idea, but then of course they, he finds out that they she's good and she's helpful and works with him. And he just he, he, his whole ideas change. I get him I start him out as pretty comfortable as a minor. Then he comes to Seattle and he has some rough spots, but he gets comfortable again. And then once he gets comfortable that last time, I really dro- drop the load on him. I make everything sort of crumble, everything he's known and seen about these people that he's been in. all like Milo, he was in awe of Milo, and he finds out several things about Milo that just changes his opinion and attitude towards him. And at the end, he's had to make the right choices. He, life is choices, and the better choices you make are the better off you're going to be. And that's basically what happens with uh, Samuel.
1: There must be a softer side in this story. There must be a woman somewhere.
3: Oh, there's a couple. Yeah.
1: So tell us about the romance with uh, Samuel or the help he gets from a special female friend.
3: Well, he he, as he was going over to Seattle um, on the boat one of the his friends in the mine, his sister went over, Mary, and he, she was also going down to Seattle. So he was going to look her up, and, you know, that was going to be somebody from home that he could deal with and like that. But he fell in love with the office manager, who was a Hungarian woman who had an 8-year-old child, and she was about 10 years older than Samuel. And she didn't want to have anything to do with him for a long time, but he kept working his way, working his way. I put in there, he'd get the $35 haircuts and the 50-cent shirts and things like that. He, he wanted to look good around her all the time. And she ended up being one of the major players in the final scene of the whole thing. And, and she broke his heart, and he was just devastated when he lost her. So it was... um he, he, you know, you learn by getting hurt. You learn by finding out, and that's how Samuel learns. He didn't learn from books. He learned from life, from experiences and stuff like that.
1: So who is the protagonist?
3: Samuel's the protagonist. Oh, the protagonist? Right. Uh, Samuel's the protagonist.
1: Well, is He's there, the, is there right? the law that's after him or after Milo well, that, that they have to deal with? something? Somebody like an Elliot Ness type of figure?
3: Well, yeah, that's that's uh, Anna, the the Chinese marshal. She's she's the one that comes in and and she's working with another man. And what they're not after the, the alcohol because everybody knows that the alcohol is going to uh, prohibition is going to change pretty soon. They're going to vote it back out, and they'll be drinking. But <clears throat> Milo had gotten a hold of a catch of um, uh, chemical weapons they used in World War Two and he was selling these to different people and for huge amounts of money, and that's what the marshals were in there trying to catch. They, could, they couldn't find out where these weapons were coming from, and they used Samuel as uh, bait, sort of, or an informer, and he didn't like doing that at all because he's scared of Milo. Uh, he's scared of the operation. He sees Milo having people killed and, and things like this, and he, did, he just was, didn't want to do it, but... They convinced him after uh, somebody got one of the characters in that gets killed. Samuel's goes help. No, I gotta go help. And that's one of the things where you change. So it's really understanding who Milo was. That's right, Milo. The, Milo's wife completely tells Samuel about what what happened with Milo and as a youth and, and why he was like he is. And and I kind of I kind of leave that because that's sort of a surprise when you get to that point in the book. And um, it it's sort of made sense. Every, everything that I wrote about in the book, I either knew about personally, or if I didn't know about it personally, Samuel never knew about it personally. In other words, if, um, if, he, if he went into a place um, for opera, if he went into a, to a production of Faust, he didn't know about that, but he found out about it. And it's just, he just kept learning and learning as he went along, and and he took the good, fortunately he took some of the good, or more of the good than the bad, as he uh, went through life.
1: So the book is a, a process of Samuel struggling between good and evil until finally he can uh, make the big decision?
3: Right. Yeah, and... That happens right, right towards the end, and in the end, I, I got a nice twist to this. I, I think it's a nice twist, anyway, to the end of the book, and that's where, where things really make sense to him. All of a sudden, things hadn't made sense to him before. He didn't understand why they just couldn't arrest these people, why this couldn't happen, and all of a sudden, at the end of the book, he understands.
1: You said you've never read a book like
3: this. No.
1: Now, explain that.
3: Well, I—I I mean, I've never read a book where the characters had the characteristics of, of what I've written about. I've never known. I've never read a book like that. I don't know what—I I don't know how to explain that. But um, it's a coming-of-age book, and it's just something that I—I've I've never seen. I—I I read a lot of mysteries and things like that but I've never read anything quite the way that I put things in the book.
1: Why was that, uh, the Roaring Twenties? Why why did that seem so glamorous to uh, a lot of people when you look back on it?
3: Well, you know, it was a time of independence. You know, when you stop and you think about um, cars in the Roaring Twenties, for example, most everybody could fix their own car. Most everybody knew how to fix them and would fix their own cars. There were there, there. wasn't such thing as microchips. If you, they're all everything was geared, big gears, pulleys. You see a gear break, you know that's what's wrong with it. You change the gear, you go on. Sawmills were huge, and, and uh, people, tons and tons of people worked for it. They had company uh, towns. Uh, it was it was just a it was just a different era. It was a, a fast, hard living era. People. Got hit, got hurt. Boxing was tough. Football was tough. I think we, I just thought it was a tougher area era, and I always kind of think back about that and think of how my father—he was a tough man. He wasn't. Uh, he was independent, and he was strong. And I figured that's because he lived through that era where they had to be tough, or you drop out.
1: Yeah, we certainly uh, need some strong, independent people today. We don't seem to. <laughs> Have that same kind of mentality in this country.
3: No, I, mean, I, I, you know, I believe that that's almost what we're going to have to go back to is people are going to have to quit depending on they're going to have to depend on themselves. They're going to have to take take their own lies and, and mold their own lies and, and make them move.
1: And that's exactly what Samuel did.
3: That's what he did. And the other fellow that he was drinking with in the bar, Jack, he stayed. He stayed back in. Uh, Seattle, I mean, stayed back in the Nanaimo and worked the the, uh, the mines.
1: And Jack never got involved.
3: No, Jack was out. Samuel looked back as they were pulling away on the ferry going from Departure Bay to um, Vancouver. He looked back and thought he might have seen Jack coming out of the shadows. But the fog closed it off, and we're, we're done with Jack after that.
1: Any closing thoughts, John?
3: Uh, no, I... I not offhand, I, I like I say. I think it's a, a, uh, the book is all about choices making. You started making bad choices. You, you think about bad choices would be like your, like you getting a tattoo of your girlfriend on your butt and then marrying somebody else. You know that's a bad choice, and, and you you got to keep you know moving ahead. And, and um, I think I think at the end of the book, people will see that that's what I did. I, I got him from one th- one line of thinking to opening up his mind and accepting more and accepting more and understanding that, that I, I I hope I knocked some of the prejudice out of him. I hope he understood that, you know, things aren't exactly as they seem because like I say, everything crumbles for him at the end and he either has to stand up or he's gonna be killed. So oh, and I'm writing a sequel so ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're
1: gonna we're gonna so know I'm more about it. Away, huh? more about Samuel, huh? yeah Well, tell us how to get your book, Lucifer's Trumpet.
3: Right. Um, It's on Amazon, and it's also, I have a website. And my website is jwilliamsbooks.com.
1: jwilliamsbooks, all plural,
3: dot com. Right. And, of course, you can get it from iUniverse. iUniverse, right. Uh, Barnes & Noble have it. Uh, Gee, I try to get it at... uh, uh, borders and they don't have it, so I don't know why that is. But yeah, anyway. People can
1: pretty well order it from anyone, though. They'll, yeah.
3: they'll always be able to get it. Yeah.
1: Great to have you on iUniverse Radio, John. Appreciate it. Okay. That was John Williams. He is the author of his book, Lucifer's Trumpet